Hey folks, a few programming notes uh, before we begin our show today. Uh, the first is that this is going to be a two-parter episode. Um, as I was working on the script, I noticed that it was getting fairly long and massive, and the episode would have gone 30, maybe 40 minutes. It is important that we keep these under 30 minutes. There are lots of gigantosaurus podcasts out there that run for a long, long, long time, and those are wonderful. But I do want this to be something that you can listen to while you're, say, cooking or on your commute or something like that. Um, also, before we begin, I want to give a shout out to my high school history teacher. Uh, the story that I'm going to tell over these next two episodes is something that I first learned about in high school. And my high school teacher, Mr. Curry, made the events I'm about to describe sound utterly ridiculous and strange and sort of bizarre and they are. I was riveted by the events I'm about to describe when I was a teenager, and I hope that I can express about a third of the amazement that I felt when I was young to you in these next two episodes. Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Strecker. No one, at least no one in the Western world, really believes in monarchies anymore. The idea that government and society is best run by kings and queens and lords and ladies and aristocrats, etc., that is a dead system. It's discredited, it's defeated, it's gone. Sure, countries might still keep their ceremonial monarchs around nowadays, a practice which, by the way, I think is ridiculous and somewhat embarrassing for a modern country. But while liberal, democratic, industrialized countries, they can spawn populations that believe in, say, communism, they can spawn populations that believe in fascism, or religious fanaticism, there aren't really any political fringe groups out there that believe in kings and aristocrats. That system, which held sway for many, many years on many parts of the globe, has been eradicated in the minds of people who live in modern liberal democracies. There are not monarchists anymore, at least not in numbers great enough to be significant. Maybe there's, you know, I don't know, one guy in Rhode Island who really thinks that America should have a king. One of the last battles against monarchism is, I think, somewhat under-celebrated. We acknowledge the American and French revolutions, for instance. Uh, we even kind of nod in the general direction of the Russian Revolution, even though that ended up with lots of, you know, Stalinism. But less so to the conflict that I want to talk about today. What I want to talk about today is a time when monarchy attempted something of a comeback. It attempted to be relevant in a place that it had been irrelevant for some time. I want to talk about how in the 1860s, the forces of European monarchism tried to impose an emperor onto Mexico, and how Mexico fought back. Since gaining independence from Spain in 1821, Mexico had collapsed into chaos. Various factions feuded with each other incessantly, and governments rose, collapsed, and rose again. The Mexican Revolution, by the way, is fascinating and definitely worth an episode of its own at some point, but we don't have time for that today. A few decades of strife, conflict, and disorder didn't do wonders for Mexico's political stability, or, and this is the important thing, it's credit rating with various European nations. Mexico, like every other major country ever, 
had issued bonds to various creditors. But, again, strife, discord, violence, etc. In the middle of the 1800s, in the face of an empty treasury, Mexican President Benito Juarez, more on him later, called for a moratorium on servicing the country's foreign debt. Uh, it wasn't an easy decision, but because of the extreme financial crisis, they had to do something. And Mexico chose to focus on matters at home and leave its debtors hanging in the wind. Its debtors didn't like this. In 1861, France, the United Kingdom, and Spain started talking about some kind of invasion or intervention in Mexico. And the UK and Spain, their plans were just maybe show up, shake them down a little, get our cash. But one of those countries got far, far more ambitious than the other two. That was France. The architect of what would become known as the Second Mexican Empire was Napoleon III of, well, France. And, you know, this guy's complicated. Um, no, there wasn't really a Napoleon II. Um, and the circumstances of this guy coming to power and becoming an emperor, uh, they would take a while to explain. But for now, the only thing that you really need to know is that France has an emperor, again. He calls himself Napoleon III, but I'm not going to call him that. My high school history teacher really loved calling him Louis Napoleon, and that's what I'm going to call him during this podcast. Louis Napoleon. Louis Napoleon of France. Louis Napoleon's brother-in-law was one of the biggest holders of Mexican bonds, so Louis had a pretty big and immediate reason to go all repo man on Mexico. What's more, Louis had imperialistic and ideological ambitions regarding the Americas. He apparently regretted that France had sold the Louisiana Purchase to the U.S., and that France had no real territory in the Western Hemisphere anymore. If he could set up a puppet empire in Mexico, that would fix that. The bondholders would get paid, Mexico would be stabilized, and France would have a major foothold in the New World. What also would make this all possible in the 1860s is a little thing called the U.S. Civil War. The United States had the Monroe Doctrine going for some time, which basically said that the Western Hemisphere is their hemisphere, and the European powers needed to stay out. However, the U.S. was pretty busy fighting itself in the 1860s, so they weren't really able to project power abroad, even into their own backyard. Because of the Civil War, Europe was free to meddle in the Americas once again. Now, this plan of Louis Napoleon's to go in and set up a puppet empire in Mexico, quite a lot of Mexican conservatives, they loved it. Uh, there was concern in Mexico itself that the country had become far too unstable since independence, and just maybe good old-fashioned European monarchy could help fix things. So, it's time to go shopping for a guy to be king. Louis Napoleon and the Mexican conservatives, they found their would-be emperor in Maximilian, the brother of Franz Joseph, the Habsburg emperor of Austria. Maximilian wasn't all that skilled in the ways of statecraft or economics or leadership or anything that would actually make him a good head of state, by the way. Pretty much everything I've read has painted him as a sort of naive 30-something who liked boats, a guy who spent a lot of time knocking about Europe doing noble stuff while his older brother actually ran a country. So it's not like France was tapping some experienced leader for their Mexican project. 
Instead, they want a guy with the right bloodline, someone who would be accepted by the established European powers, and a kind of monarch who would act as a symbol of the state and be able to wield power with a lot of advice from ministers, advisors, and bureaucrats, etc. In 1863, a rubber stamp body called the Assembly of Notables, uh, notables here, meaning landowners and church officials, gathered in Mexico City and announced that Mexico would, from that point on, be under the rule of a Catholic monarch. Uh, their first choice was Maximilian of Austria, and if he said no, Mexico would ask Louis Napoleon to pick another monarch for them. Um, by the way, if it sounds weird that France wants to just transplant a member of the Austrian royal family to Mexico and start up a new monarchy, uh, keep in mind that by the 1860s, Europe had a long tradition of moving royals around, marrying them to each other, having a monarch accumulate titles, etc. It wasn't entirely unheard of for a king or queen or emperor or empress to be from a pretty different background from their subjects. Uh, Tsar Nicholas II, for instance, he was, by all accounts, much more of an English country gentleman than a Russian steppe person. So it might seem weird for a modern person, for someone like Maximilian, who had never been to Mexico, um, to swoop in and start running a country that he was not from or of, but it wasn't weird for conservative Europeans back in the 1860s. Also, it might sound a little strange to have a national assembly vote and confer authority on an emperor. Uh, nowadays, when one thinks of a monarch with real political power, they imagine that power deriving from the divine right of kings, or the mandate of heaven, or something like that. However, around that time, in the middle 1800s, it was kind of fashionable for monarchs to be elected. Uh, democracy and monarchy were coexisting at that point, and some monarchs were borrowing the trappings and rhetoric of democracies in order to legitimize themselves. Louis Napoleon, for example, made a big deal about he'd been elected by a democratic assembly. Such a vote helped make monarchism look legitimate in the face of a world that was becoming more and more democratic. So, France had the word of a bunch of rich people and church officials legitimizing Maximilian's rule. Uh, he also had something else, though, that would help him solidify his imperial position, which was 40,000 French soldiers, but they'll be important next episode. However, there were two major impediments for the new state taking root. One was Maximilian himself, and the other was Mexican liberals. Maximilian we'll deal with right now, but the resistance by the Mexican liberals to the new monarchy, that's going to have to wait until next time. So, unfortunately for his French patrons and conservative supporters, Maximilian himself was not, in fact, eager to become some kind of old-school European king. He was actually something of a liberal, and he actually wanted to Mexico to vote on whether or not to have him. He said, When the majority of the country has expressed its desire to see me take the reins of power, I am ready to abandon Europe and accept the vote of the Mexican people. Remember when I said that elected monarchs were kind of becoming a thing? This is a great example of that. Maximilian didn't just want an assembly of notables to declare him emperor. He wanted the word of the people, or at least the appearance of the word of the people. The French organized a series of elections throughout Mexico to vote, quote-unquote, on a new monarch. However, these elections were basically shams that were only intended to bolster the legitimacy of the Austrian whom they intended to install. The French-run elections 
only took place in the various Mexican state capitals. Mexico has states, just like the U.S., and large swaths of the rural population didn't even participate. It was, for the most part, just urban, conservative, monarchy-favoring Mexicans who ended up voting in these rubber-stamp elections. However, sham elections held only in state capitals that excluded most of the population were good enough, and Maximilian accepted the throne of Mexico on April 10, 1864. Now, if you're wondering if Maximilian's court was at all like the courts of Europe with all of their pomp and ceremony and solemnity and mustaches, well, it doesn't seem that way. Uh, apparently, New World Republicanism was hard to shake off even in the face of a guy who was suddenly an emperor. France was attempting to make an imperial court basically out of whole cloth, and they didn't have the history, the tradition, the culture, all of that to really back it up. Uh, this is a letter that Max wrote to his brother Franz Joseph of Austria, and I think it nicely illustrates how ridiculous this whole project actually was. Maximilian writes, The bearing of the court ladies towards the empress, too, their shaking hands with her, their hearty friendliness, are a little shocking to our conceptions of imperial etiquette. The whole impression is, so to speak, that of a make-believe court, the various offices of which are occupied by amateurs who are not very sure of their parts. There can be no question of good or bad tone here, for this court is absolutely lacking in tone. I love that image. I love the idea that a population, even a conservative aristocratic one, can be so infected with the ideas of democracy and equality, and I'm not talking about economic equality here, more existential or ontological equality, the, you know, all men are created equal type of equality, they can be so infected with that idea that they think nothing of shaking hands with an empress. Uh, it kind of reminds me about how recently uh, the prince and princess of Wales were in America, and LeBron James put his arm around a member of the British royal family. You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to touch royals. But LeBron James, he's an American, and he said, Hey, how you doing? I'm a giant celebrity. I'm going to hug you now. And those ideas of royalistic propriety, once they're gone, they're just kind of gone. And the monarchy just sort of looks silly. Anyway, the expectation of Maximilian's French benefactors was that he'd be essentially kind of a dictator. Uh, Mexico was in a state of disarray, and Louis Napoleon, as well as several Mexican conservatives, thought that a heavy hand was necessary to fix all the problems that the country was facing. On this, Maximilian delivered. He did initially want to limit his own powers and make Mexico seem more like a modern nation, with limits on the absolute power of the head of state. But he eventually gave in to the will of France and to some of the more conservative monarchists, and he ruled as an old-school emperor. However, his policies and politics did not please the Mexican conservatives, who were his most ardent supporters. The president of Mexico, Benito Juarez, and again, where there's going to be a whole lot more about that guy next week, had enacted several reformist policies, such as, this is really radical, extending the right to vote to people who didn't own land. Um, also, land reforms, wherein Juarez repossessed a lot of the land that had been owned by the Catholic Church 
redistributed it to, well, not the Catholic Church. And, most shocking of all, there was freedom of religion. Juarez, uh, one of the major things that he did was say that all marriages in Mexico would be civil rather than religious. Maximilian, he just let that policy stick around. So, the guy who was supposed to be a bulwark against all of this radical liberalism, like civil marriages and voting for everybody, the guy who was supposed to stand against all that, he said, eh, it's fine. Maximilian even said to Benito Juarez, who was at this point the president of a government in exile, he said, hey, come back, be prime minister, we can work together. Benito Juarez, though, was a liberal reformist president of Mexico, and he said, no. This man, who has an incredible life story, he was not about to be some Austrian noble's prime minister or flunky. He was not about to be a collaborator. Instead, Juarez led an insurrection against the invading government, and the subsequent conflict would expel the forces of European monarchy from the North American continent until today. Next time, Juarez will lead a revolt against an invading government, and it will end with Maximilian's death. So, next week is Christmas, and that means that the episode is going to be slightly early. Uh, I'm not going to put an episode out on the 25th, because I imagine a lot of you folks will be, you know, stressing out about how you have to go to your parents' place, or how your parents are coming to your place, or you have kids screaming at you about how you didn't get them the right thing. Or maybe you'll have fun. Maybe you like Christmas. It's okay. Christmas is fine. Christmas can be fine. Anyway, I'm not going to put out an episode on Christmas. I'm going to put out next week's episode early in the morning on Christmas Eve. So before you go and hang out with your aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, brother, sister, niece, nephew, and kids, you can listen to all about what happened to Maximilian. Uh, he dies. I mean, spoiler alert. We have related links for every episode at interestingtimespodcast.com. Also, follow me on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. On the website and on Twitter, feel free to ask me any questions you like about the podcast. Uh, if there is a point of fact or if there is a detail that you want to know more about, uh, send a question my way, and I will respond to you. Um, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash interestingtimeswithjoestreckert. You should go there and click the like button. Go to iTunes, give us a review, give us a rating. That helps people find a show, and I'll see you guys next week.